Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider. Please rate us on iTunes. That's an important thing, and it helps get us new listeners. So if you could take the 10 seconds to do that, that would be awesome and make me feel very special. The future of U.S.-China relations has not been so uncertain since the normalization of relations in 1979, writes Ryan Haas, currently a scholar at Brookings who served as Obama's National Security Council director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia during Obama's second term. Ryan, welcome to China Econ Talk. Thank you, Jordan. It's a pleasure to be here. So I hear that your dad was a golf pro, and as a kid, you wanted to be the next Jack Nicholas. I'm curious if you've played any rounds of golf with Chinese government officials, and how you would rate the golf courses and the places you've been stationed over the past few years. Oh well, thanks for the question. It's uh, it's always fun to talk about golf. I grew up playing a lot of golf and、uh, came up well short of becoming the next Jack Nicholas, but still enjoy the the game a lot. I did have a chance to play a bit in China. It was great, tremendous hospitality, great courses. Probably、uh, not quite the caliber of courses that you find in places like South Korea, but very good nonetheless. Yeah, so I actually went to a driving range expedition with the、uh, Beida Golfing Club, which was an interesting experience to say the least. I was very impressed, actually, with the the, the caliber of talent in that、uh, little organization. There were maybe maybe thirty or forty so kids on the campus, but they took their game pretty seriously. I love to hear it. It's great to see the game grow in China. So, Ryan, I'd love to talk before we get into the contemporary dynamics between U.S. China a little bit about your path to the NSC through the State Department. Particularly, any、uh, advice for those listeners out there considering a career in foreign service, as you seem to have had the kind of dream arc ending up on the National Security. Council. Well, I I do feel very fortunate about the experiences I've had,、uh, and I would just simply encourage anyone who is passionate about international relations to consider working in the foreign service. It's a noble calling. It's a lot of fun. You get to work with tremendous colleagues in interesting settings and be a part of history. So, foreign service, absolutely. I, I hope that、uh, anyone who's interested in the subject goes for it. And as for you know how you go from the foreign service to ending up in the White House, I think it's really has a lot to do with serendipity and luck. But if I had one piece of advice to pass along, it would be to be nice to people. The White House is a—it's a pressure-packed place. There's a narrow margin for error. Pretty much anyone who's considered for a job there has demonstrated themselves to be competent and smart. So it's not really、uh, possible. Is that really think- the case now in 2019? <laughs> is niceness really what keeps you、um, uh, on 1600 Pennsylvania? You know, there's this interesting joke that you sometimes play when you watch these like Chinese palace dramas of you know concubines infighting and like the princes all trying to kill each other. And then the question is like, how many episodes do you think you would last personally?、Um, you know, if you be Killed off by like the tenth one or the twentieth one,、um, you know, maybe not necessarily the sort of calculations you have to do in the Obama White House. But I think,、uh, you know, nowadays maybe not so much. But I guess it's well, a little different for the career officials than for the、uh, appointed ones. I would imagine. I think so, and I'll be the first to acknowledge that I operated in a more benign environment、uh, during the no drama Obama years、uh, than appears to be the case now. My point is simply that、uh, anyone who's considered for a job there typically is considered to be smart and competent. And what separates those that、uh, do well from those that 
don't isn't IQ. It's how well people relate to others and how well they operate under stress. So the more that uh, you can demonstrate your ability to do those things in a nice collegial way, uh, I think the better you set yourself up for opportunities at the White House. Sure. Well, hanging out in the uh, U.S. Embassy in Beijing is certainly an opportunity to encounter some relatively stressful situations, I imagine. So recently we had Caroline Atkinson talk about her experiences dealing with Chinese counterparts. And I'm curious if you could uh, maybe generalize a little bit about what your observations were working with them compared to other countries and diplomats you've engaged with over your career? Well, it it feels like there's a certain mythology that has set in recently about Chinese diplomats, Chinese officials, and the vision and determination and drive that they have. I would just say that Chinese diplomats aren't 10 feet tall. They can't see around mountains. They can't predict the future. They are surely determined, persistent, precise. They carry out orders with vigor. But they also are constrained by the system they operate in. They don't enjoy the same degree of flexibility and creativity that most American officials do. They don't have the same decision-making autonomy that Americans do. That doesn't make them any less smart. It just means that the way that our system is set up, it gives us an advantage, Americans an advantage to maintain the initiative to set the terms of negotiation with the Chinese. And that is a big reason in my mind why the United States government traditionally has been in the role of setting the agenda and the pace of negotiations with Chinese counterparts over the 40-year history of the U.S.-China relationship. Could you tease that out a little bit? So what does that mean on a day-to-day level, you having more operational freedom than than Chinese counterparts? It, it basically means that we have the ability to make decisions quicker in a more coordinated fashion, often than our Chinese counterparts do. The U.S. government is set up so that information gets funneled through the National Security Council staff to the president, and it allows us to make trade-offs between competing priorities and to uh, establish objectives in a quicker fashion than our Chinese counterparts often do through the lumbering policy process that exists uh, within the upper echelons of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, it's interesting every once in a while when you see a big uh, news story come out and all of a sudden the Chinese government is silent for three or four days while they're trying to figure out exactly what to do and, and, and how to respond. And it seems like that that interagency wrangling, which is something people endlessly complain about with the American system, however bad it is, there, there are still definitely some advantages when it comes to a coordination and airing out uh, views openly as opposed to your counterparts on the Chinese side. Exactly. It's it's much better to have the initiative than to be constantly reacting to the initiative of others. So any other broader lessons uh, you took away about how China and the CCP works from your time at the NSC? Well, one reflection that I guess I had is that as important as Xi Jinping is, Xi Jinping is not China and China is not Xi Jinping. And I think it's a mistake to treat both of them as being one and the same. China is a complicated place, and it does a disservice to serious analysis to sort of conflate the two together. And how about taking the same lens to the U.S. government? What do you think you you took away looking internally being part of the uh, policymaking process? Well, the United States is also a complicated place. And within the United States government, each department and agency has its own issue or issues that it considers to be the most consequential paramount issues in the U.S.-China relationship. For uh, the FBI, it might be you know, counterintelligence issues. For the Department of Defense, it's security issues. The United States Trade Representative thinks that trade issues are, are paramount. And it really it falls to the president and his staff to set the priorities within the relationship. And when they don't do so, China policy often becomes a free-for-all. 
of mixed messages, conflicting signals, and it becomes a bit of a jumble. And when that happens, my sense is that Washington has diminished ability to influence how China identifies and pursues its interests. So it's absolutely essential uh, within U.S. government to have a president and a staff around him who are able to set priorities and deconflict between competing pressures within the U.S. government. So who do you feel worse for or who do you feel like has the harder job, the Chinese diplomats in Washington or the Americans in Beijing when it comes to figuring out what's going on in the opposite capital? <laughs> well, typically, I would say American diplomats in Beijing because, you know, China is a rather opaque place. Uh, American diplomats' access to senior leaders is uh, not always the best, even uh, at the ambassadorial level. But right now, uh, the, the policy process in Washington is so fluid and sometimes chaotic that uh, I do uh, think that uh, sometimes... St still a diplomat, still a true <laughs> diplomat, a fluid policymaking <laughs> process. All right. I, I, I do think that it's probably a bit confusing for our uh, Chinese uh, diplomatic friends in Washington these days as well. Sure. So coming back to the, the Obama administration, what do you think were the strategic assumptions that undergirded Obama's China policy? Well, we, we operated with a couple of organizing principles. The first was that our ability to influence how China identifies and pursues its interests is enhanced through serious, sustained, leader-level diplomacy. And I think that this is a, you know, an organizing principle that is carried over to the Trump administration as well. But there are areas where we took a different approach. Uh, for example, our view in the Obama administration was that our ability to address major global challenges would be enhanced if China was pulling in the same direction as us. We saw our China policy as an element of a broader Asia policy and not vice versa. We thought this was critical because our strategy was built around working in close coordination with allies and partners to try to shape China's choices. We also, we accepted that resolve was key and that friction would be natural, necessary, byproduct of an effective China strategy. We didn't shy away from friction with the Chinese, but we tried to be selective in choosing where we would concentrate that friction. And we tried to concentrate it in areas where Chinese actions directly implicated our vital interests. So areas like cyber, uh, North Korea, certain maritime issues. I can also tell you what our strategy was not organized around. We didn't seek to stifle China's rise. We didn't seek to destabilize the Chinese political or social system. And in net, you know, when you sort of take a step back and, and look at it, I will be the first to acknowledge that uh, we made plenty of mistakes in the Obama administration. We didn't get everything right. But hopefully, uh, over time, history will judge that uh, on the big issues, we got more of them right than we got wrong. Yeah, I remember reading an article back in the Obama administration, some quote for some, from some senior official saying, basically, in 50 years, no one's going to care uh, about any other policy coming out of this White House aside from what we did with respect to China. So a certain, you know, even though it wasn't necessarily in the headline every day, it was a, clearly a, a major part of the, of the thought process and, and took up a, a serious mindshare of the administration. So you write that the basic assumptions and expectations that guided the development of U.S.-China relations over the past 40 years no longer hold. So do you think Obama and the D.C. establishment held on to those strategic assumptions you just walked out, you just um, laid out for too long, or were they appropriate at the time and, and things have changed over the past few years uh, to kind of justify the um, much more aggressive tone coming out of Washington towards, uh, towards China? 
Well, it, it's a great question. If I could just go back to your, your earlier comment, it was really rewarding to be a part of the Obama administration because there was a president who focused on China on a daily basis. And it, it didn't always show up publicly, but behind the scenes, there was a constant communication and an ongoing dialogue within the White House about what we were doing with China. And my view, and it's certainly not a view that's shared by everyone, so I, I welcome amendments from others, but my view is that the Obama administration left behind a U.S.-China relationship that was more durable, more resilient, and more productive in generating tangible cooperation on priority issues, things like recovering the global economy after the financial crisis, dealing with climate change, pandemic disease prevention, Iran, Afghanistan, North Korea, etc. So that's, I think it's something that often gets lost in the feverish uh, discussion of the day about China. The other thing that's often overlooked is that the Obama administration left behind a relationship that had greater ability to manage challenges. There were military confidence-building measures put in place to reduce risk of unintended incidents, creating rapid escalation. Uh, there were mechanisms established to handle cyber incidents. Uh, there were senior-level talks about strategic stability, what it is and what could challenge it. So the, the relationship was better able to withstand shocks and generate meaningful cooperation. And those are assumptions that are being uh, tested right now. The basic assumption I was referring to in the piece that you cited was this belief over the course of 40 years that U.S. interests would be best served by a constructive relationship with China that uh, mitigated risk of conflict and maximized areas for cooperation. And that's no longer really the, you know, the guiding focus of America's policy towards China at the moment. And I don't necessarily expect that U.S. policy ever will revert back to the way it was before. The United States has changed and so too has China. But I do think that as time goes by, there, there is a high possibility of both sides seeking to find a more balanced relationship than, than currently exists today. And that's simply because neither side's interests are served well by a hostile relationship. And both sides are going to have a hard time dealing with the real challenges that they confront if there is a highly confrontational or hostile relationship between the United States and China. Could you make um, make a little more tangible what you think these sorts of recurring dialogues meant and, and what these sorts of meetings were able to or had the possibility to smooth over? Sure. You know, I'm not a proponent of dialogue for dialogue's sake. I do think that it should be purpose-driven. But at the same time, there is a value in having a continuous communication, uh, having opportunities to clarify what the other side's intentions were during periods of heightened stress in the relationship. And frankly, just the personal relationships that get formed over the course of successive rounds of, uh, of meetings. You get to know the other side better. You understand them at a human level. And that makes a difference when, you know, the chips are down and, and you find yourselves in a crisis that you're trying to work yourself out of. Fortunately, in the past two years, the United States-China relationship really hasn't endured a serious crisis, and I hope that it doesn't in the coming period either. But uh, if and when it does, uh, there's a lot of value in knowing in a very real sense uh, how the other side operates, how they think, uh, what their tolerance for risk is, what their priorities are. And you can only achieve those things by having continuous communication with the other side. Sure. So coming to today, and uh, you call what Trump is doing with respect to China an attitude without a strategy. So would you mind expanding on that? Well, sure. I mean, my view is that the strategy is basically a plan to achieve an identified and agreed upon objective. 
That's, you know, at its core what its strategy is. And I'm not sure that there is an internally agreed-upon objective or a plan for achieving it. Um, the, my question is, what is President Trump and the Trump administration trying to achieve with China? Are they trying to slow down China's rise? Are they trying to destabilize the Communist Party? Are they trying to cause Beijing to abandon uh, an economic model that they've been uh, pursuing? Are they trying to decouple the U.S. and Chinese economies? Are they trying to get China to buy more American goods and services? Is it something else? I, I honestly can't tell you. Uh, what I can tell you from observation is that President Trump and the members of his team appear to have turned confrontation with China into an organizing principle. It's their basic orientation towards China. It was manifested uh, most clearly through Vice President Pence's speech last fall. And I think part of the reason for that is that confrontation is the lowest common denominator that virtually everyone inside the administration can agree upon. It is permissive environment to confront China on a range of issues in which China is taking actions that we view as challenging our interests. My point simply is that confrontation is not a strategy. It's an attitude. And what we need to be doing is finding ways to shape how the Chinese leadership identifies and pursues its interests. And purely confronting them and hoping that confrontation leads to capitulation uh, is not an assumption that I'm comfortable hanging uh, U.S. policy on. So what I found very surprising living in Beijing and speaking with a lot of highly educated Chinese who, who follow the news pretty closely is this opinion that Trump is a strategic genius, that he has found a way to uh, push the Chinese government like no other president over the past 40 years really has. And, uh, you know, hitting the Chinese economy in a difficult business cycle for them has really given him much more leverage than any other American president has in a long time. So what is this line of argument missing in your view? Well, to some extent, I think that those expressions of support for President Trump in Beijing reflect an indirect way of criticizing China's current leadership. Mm. It's not always easy for Chinese uh, netizens, Chinese citizens, Chinese thought leaders to be openly publicly critical of the Chinese leadership. It is easier for them to express support for President Trump and what he's trying to do in pushing uh, China down the path of reform. I heard a joke in Beijing recently that two old men uh, deserve credit for pushing China down the path of reform and opening, Deng Xiaoping and Donald Trump. <laughs> and I, I think that there's, you know, I think that there's something to it. It makes sense if if you're a reform-minded Chinese person hoping that President Trump has success in pushing China to go down the path that it identified uh, with its third plenum reform package. And look, if President Trump is able to get the Chinese leadership to accelerate its domestic e economic reforms, I think that would be a wonderful outcome. It would be good for China, it'd be good for the United States, and it'd be good for the global economy. What's interesting coming out of the administration is it seems like the only department that really seems to know what it's doing is USTR. And the structure, the aims, the the means, the professionalism just seems to be on another level from the rest of what the government has been able to put out. So how much does the kind of institutional knowledge that Robert Lighthizer brings uh, and his staff bring to this sort of confrontation mean uh, when we're now seeing trade really be up in the forefront? Is that a combination of Trump's interest as well as his skill, the kind of lack of focus from sleepy Wilbur Ross and, and whatnot? Or what's, what's going on here that's really brought trade to the forefront of the conflict? Well, trade is an issue that touches Americans in a very visceral way. Uh, a lot of Americans' jobs depend upon trade with China or are affected by uh, China's economic policies and actions. 
And I think that President Trump has tapped into uh, a feeling of concern that Americans have about their future and a sense that China is stealing America's future through its actions and its policies. Uh, and I do agree with you. I think that uh, Ambassador Lighthizer is a very effective official. I think that he has a clear sense of what he is trying to accomplish and a strategy for pursuing those interests. The challenge that he has is that he operates in an environment where on any given day, the president or or others, uh, Secretary Mnuchin or Larry Kudlow, say things that are at odds with uh, the strategy that Ambassador Lighthizer is pursuing. You know, we might let it slip so, a little. We might let the tariff slip a little. You know, it's it's yeah. like yeah, it's like it's and like so it's like it, you're playing it's like you're playing Monopoly with your nephew and you just like slip them a hundred because they want to buy an extra <laughs> hotel or something. And, and you know, the older yeah. cousin is like, what the hell's going on here? Like, why can't I? <laughs> like, we're playing by the rules, I thought. Um, no, it must be, yeah. it must be uh, an hell, a hell of an opportunity, but also a lot of frustration within that office, I'm sure. Yeah, and I think that they also feel, you know, an enormous amount of pressure because uh, trade has become such a front burner, uh, high profile issue and a market moving issue as well. So one of the interesting caveats to this Trump strategy are polling numbers that have come out on the general public with respect to China that really look nothing like what they did as opposed to against the USSR during the Cold War. And Washington seems to have taken a much more negative view on Beijing than Main Street currently does. So what do you think is going on here? And is this at all relevant to the, um, to the broader discussion? Oh, I think it is relevant, Jordan. And I think you're right. If you look at polling data of American attitudes towards China, they've been surprisingly consistent over the past decade. If, uh, the numbers in 2008 are almost identical to the numbers in 2018. And a lot of people outside of the Beltway still see a lot of opportunity in China. That's why there are so many governors and mayors that are uh, working with their Chinese counterparts to try to unlock economic opportunities as we speak. But at the same time, as you noted, views inside the Beltway and among the expert community towards China have hardened considerably in recent years. And um, so we, we have this interesting dynamic within the United States where the general public does not, uh, at least yet, uh, seem as exercised about China, but uh, the expert community members of Congress uh, and others inside the Beltway certainly are. So it's funny to think back to when Trump was enjoying his uh, red carpet treatment in Beijing and seemed so impressed with what uh, she had going on domestically. So um, one of my favorite podcasts is the show called Switched On Pop, which analyzes pop songs and occasionally does this segment called Classical Masters that takes something from like Mozart or Beethoven and, and shows how it applies to contemporary pop music. So I'm going to try to do the same thing here, but we're going to call it Imperial Interludes. Uh, so I've been reading this book called F.W. Moat's History of Imperial China, uh, where he writes that in the 900s, the Catan visitors, who were the folks who ended up creating the Liao Empire in the 900s, had observed the great court audiences where all the military and civil leaders of the vast Chinese audience would render servile obeisance, almost without regards for the personal qualities of the ruler. The emperor's commands appeared to be unquestionably obeyed. The observation of that spectacle at the Chinese court always 
impressed visitors and was a central reason for why barbarians wanted to incorporate elements of Chinese imperial rule into their more tribal and consensus-based and meritocratic societies. So I wonder if this trip and other interactions that Trump had with uh, strongmen around the world had any impact on him in the way that it did with these you know, northern tribesmen coming into uh, the imperial capitals of the Tang and Song dynasties. And this is a big stretch, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I, I can't speak for President Trump, but I, I have experienced the hospitality of uh, the Chinese during a state visit uh, by President Obama, and I can tell you it's impressive. Um, the Chinese have spent thousands of years mastering the art of hospitality. And uh, they use it to their advantage as one of their, uh, you know, one of their chief tools in their diplomatic toolkit. I think they've taken North Korean leaders around to Chinese cities and 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 kind of give them, given them the pitch like, look, this is what you could become as long as you opened up and and created um, a more a more liberalized economic system and whatnot. So it's not necessarily just for um, you know the the democratic presidents coming around that that China seeks to put on a show. Oh yeah, I think it's an equal opportunity show uh, for for visitors to China. For sure. So given that you're not all that on board with the strategy Trump is currently pursuing, I'm curious what your what your vision would be like. So I like this uh, entry point on a recent piece you wrote with um, uh, Myra Rapp Hopper, focusing on the most important questions uh, when formulating a China strategy. So first off, what is your take on China's ambitions? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's a massive question that uh, we are all uh, in the China expert community grappling with and debating amongst ourselves. My view of China's ambitions is that uh, China wants to be respected. It wants to return to what it views as its rightful historic place in the international system. It wants to be treated with deference. It does not want its core interests to be challenged. And China also wants to, I think the leadership very much is committed to protecting uh, its form of government, the unchallenged rule of the Communist Party of China. And what America's goals in Asia should be with respect to China? Well, it's, you know, again, that's a, it's a massive question. I will offer a couple of modest ideas that I hope, you know, contribute to the debate and discussion that is ongoing about this. Um, first, I think that it would be helpful for the United States to develop a concept for what type of relationship it wants with China. What would be realistic? What would serve our interests? My view is that we should be thinking along the terms of you know, competitive interdependence, where competition is still the defining attribute of the U.S.-China relationship, but it's conducted within a framework that acknowledges that both sides' futures are intertwined and that either side's ability to address the greatest challenges it confronts will be inhibited in the absence of cooperation with the other. Uh, secondly, I, I do think it would be helpful for both sides to recommit to building guardrails around competition in the relationship, finding ways to create restraints on competition in areas where there's the greatest risk of escalation. And I'm thinking about things like space, cyber, uh, the role of artificial intelligence technologies and weapon systems. These are areas where the rules are underdeveloped or unformed, and the United States and China need to come together and figure out what is acceptable state behavior in these domains? Coming to the rulemaking point, it's interesting to think whether or not um, saying Trump loses in the in the 2020 election, you know, to what extent the, the Chinese are going to be scarred by the experience that they've had dealing with the Trump administration? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. 
the experience of the Trump administration has provided validation for a lot of people in China who have long assumed that as the gap in relative national power between the United States and China shrinks, that the United States will become more focused on trying to restrain China's rise. And so I think that this is being baked in, uh, not just as an assumption, but as an expectation on the part of the Chinese. And so I'm sure that will color how the Chinese approach and deal with future administrations. I'm not yet willing to conclude that President Trump will not be reelected in 2020. I think that there's a, you know, there's a real possibility that he will be. And I expect that the Chinese also are aware that uh, it's not a foregone conclusion that President Trump will leave office in 2020. You know, what, what's interesting is even if a Democrat does win and, and takes a less, a less aggressive tone towards China, which, again, is, is, is an assumption. There's not like a wellspring of, of warm feelings from the Democratic Party to China. But having gone through this experience of a really aggressive trade war, of a really aggressive president, you know, it may end up giving future administrations more. Uh, more leverage and more more wiggle room, uh, having really shown that the U.S. system is is capable of, of turning a lot of levers that previously were beyond the pale for a president to um, put on China. Yeah, oh, I think you're absolutely right. Look, you know, President Trump ran on this argument that uh, that the past approach, not just to China but to other issues as well, hasn't worked, and that he alone would be able to shake things up. And I think that he has shaken things up. He has uh, forced everyone to revisit their assumptions. And going forward, you're, you're absolutely right, Jordan. Things aren't going to snap back to the, the way that they were before President Trump. And it will be interesting to see what state he leaves the relationship in and what leverage he uh, leaves for his successor. Yeah, either, either two years or, or six years from now, for sure. The concept of responsible competition, which you alluded to earlier, elaborate on that a little bit. Well, the the basic idea is that uh, the United States and China are two global powers uh, with global interests. They are going to compete across the globe on a uh, a range of issues, and you know we have a sort of a historical set of examples to draw from of ways in which great power competition has been benign or non-conflictual in, in ways in which it's gone off the rails and, and led to conflict. Uh, I think that everyone or, or just about everyone hopes that we learn from the lessons of history, um, build guardrails around competition so that it's conducted in a way that uh, doesn't drive both parties uh, in the direction of hostility or conflict. Brian, any parting words for your successors in the in the White House? Well, you know, as an American, I, I always am rooting for the United States uh, to advance its interests with China, no matter who is in the Oval Office. I guess I hope that over time, the United States returns to pursuing a more sober-minded and serious strategy for influencing how China identifies and pursues its interests. And I think one of the key elements of going down that path will be finding our friends again. You know, shaping China's choices is very difficult to do in the best of circumstances, but it's uh, extremely hard to do unless the United States is in tight coordination with allies and partners who share similar goals and objectives. And I hope that as time goes on, that becomes uh, an increasing priority of our efforts uh, with China. Expand on that a little bit. So how does this play out in practice, the idea of having not just the U.S., but allies pushing together? And, and to what extent does, uh, are, are, in, your, in your experience, has it made Beijing perk up its ears more? Well, I'll offer one example, um, which was the Trans-Pacific Partnership. This idea that the United States would uh, 
join in a trade pact with other economies throughout Asia to develop high standard rules on things like environmental safeguards, labor standards, uh, the role of state-owned enterprises, intellectual property rights. And then China would face a choice. They could either choose not to join uh, the Trade Pacific Partnership and self-isolate as a consequence, or they could choose to rise to meet the standards that had been set by the rest of the region and join the Trans-Pacific Partnership in a manner that would be more equitable to all trading partners. And uh, that was you know, not a directly confrontational way to change how China conducts its economic policy. But I think that if it had been carried out in full with the United States participation, it would have had a significant effect on uh, Chinese decision making. Missed opportunities abound. Ryan Haas, thanks so much for being a part of China Econ Talk. Jordan, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SUP China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shut